Welcome to 80s Music Exposed, the podcast in which we review all the best albums of the 80s, one month at a time. We will break them down, give you the skinny, and duke it out over whether you should or should not dig these back out again. If you are ready for an 80s music deep dive, from Public Enemy to Wham, Eno to XTC, Madonna, hair metal, reggae, and all points in between, then crank the boombox, turn the Walkman up to 10, and ooh, let's go. Now, from the kitchen, Chris and Henry. Welcome to 80s Music Exposed. Woo, first episode. Do you think that kind of says what we're about to do? But I, I think our intro kind of kind of gave it away, but just so people know, basically this is, uh, it's not an original idea. I got to give full faith and credit to... Uh, one of my favorite podcasts who does this for movies basically in the 80s um, called 80s All Over. So, yeah, that really cool podcast. So, we're totally stealing your idea. Totally stealing their idea. Uh, we're going to do the music version of that, and hopefully, the, they will, if they hear about it, they will like it and not sue us. But um, <laughs> right. it's totally an homage. So, so, so please don't, don't hammer us for that. But yeah, we're just going to, we're going to deep dive the music of the 80s. And we thought, I thought of this, Henry. As kind of like, you know, we get force fed the nostalgia uh, records from the 80s and, you know, there's 80s stations and there's the 80s on 8 and stuff like that. And you hear the same kind of bullshit over and, and over. And that movie that came out with all the 80s stuff jammed into it. Right. And, right? I, and I, I was thinking, like, what if we went what if we went month by month, you know, uh, all the way through the 80s if we've got the if we've got the energy to get all the way through the 80s. And actually look at the releases, the album releases those months, and deep dive them and check it out and see what kind of music we missed. Maybe there's some music we thought was shitty back then, and then we listen to it now, and we're like, oh, we like that. And uh, hopefully you guys out there will do the same thing. And really what we wanted to do with this is hopefully build a community, because that's the that's the important part. We want to build a community of people that are excited about this music, whether they like our reviews or disagree with it or say god damn it you forgot this record this record and this record which that will be cool too let us know that but we definitely want it to be a community thing not just the two of us sitting here talking chime in and tell which which one of us is full of shit yeah and and if if there's a record that you uh, remember that you want reviewed then let us know and and maybe it'll make the list henry how did we how did we pick the records that we're reviewing we got four different criteria we used to try to sort through these there's a lot of decisions to make here but uh, we're using the all music five star rating. So if it received five stars in all music, yeah, the all music website, if it, right? ha- if it currently holds five stars, it currently, currently, that's right. If they were Grammy nominees. Yeah. we tr- And this is, this is a little bit hard. So people get bear with us because like the records are reviewing today. But we're talking out the album. We're talking albums. Right. And also remember this, not just one, but maybe nominated. Remember this folks. The albums we're discussing today probably won't wouldn't have been nominated until the nineteen eighty one Grammy Awards because it's gotta be out in nineteen eighty. Oh, yeah, yeah, so yeah. and you're looking at release date. Right. And we're looking at release dates, so so cut us a little slack there. But uh we're gonna try to pick up the Grammy nominees. The third one is uh, criteria is we went back and picked up, of course, some of the selections that we liked that maybe didn't make Because the, we're total music nerds. Right. And I didn't want to not talk about 
uh, records you, that I love. You can't skip over that stuff. If you got people listening, you got to tell them what was sure. good that you do know about. Sure. But we also want you right. to know this is not going to be just records Henry and Chris likes, and it's not just going to be us reviewing Men Without Hats, okay? There's going to be... Or AHA. Or AHA. There's going to be... This is a deep dive into the 80s, so there's going to be some shit on here that you might just be like, what? Or be really, qu- or really questionable about. Right. And, yeah. and you know, I've already found Henry with, with January of 1980 selections... That there's shit that I we're, miss that I kind of yeah, like. That we're I didn't pushing think I boundaries here. You know, it's funny, like when you start forcing your hand into listen or committing to something. Sure. Um, in, in this culture that we live in right now, it is that sort of, uh, we have every bit of music at our disposal. You know, the entire history, history, historicity of music is available for you to find and know. Right. So you don't have to engage uh, if you're qu- if you're questionable or whatever, you can move on to the exact thing that you want. Which maybe that's not the best way to appreciate and know about music. No, for sure. And and you know the other thing I want to try to get across with this, maybe some of these will be things you didn't remember that you remembered. Hopefully, like for me and Henry, it's going to give us by the end of this podcast or whatever. I'm going to feel like I really, really remember the way I felt about music in the eighties, as opposed to what I'm forced fed on the radio. Now, number four, Rolling Stone year in top 25. We're going to look at that too. from then, not now. So we're not looking at what Rolling Stone thoughts into right. held up over the test of time. I went back and found what for that year, the Rolling Stone right. thought was dope. Not what the hipsters from <laughs> right. Pitchfork say right. is the top 25. No, this is the Rolling Stone top 25 from yeah, that particular of, year. Of those music critics or whatever, they whoever's writing a magazine. That's right. So we're going to go by release date. We're going to go one month at a time. And this episode, our first episode is uh, January of 1980. And Henry, why don't you lead us into our first record? Okay. The first record that we're going to talk about is called Guilty. By By Barbara Streisand. Barbara Streisand. And here is a little bit of the title cut. Guilty. That was guilty, and I'm, well, I'm going to let you start you, rolling on this I, one. You know, you're supposed to play "Woman in Love." That's the one that I was in the back seat of my parents' Toyota Corolla, listening to. I mean, that is the one. Guilty was good too. 
I guess but, I guess we had different households because my mom loved this record. This was the the record. Did that, she like listen to it? Yes. Do you you remember from like yes? But by the way, all these records we're talking about, or will be talking about, for probably the first. I mean, if we keep going for a year, or whatever, is right at the apex of. Uh, before it was going CD, hadn't quite gone CD. Oh yeah, yet. we're we're still we're right there. We're looking at people had albums and tapes. They may have even had eight tracks. My, no, this the 1980 was pretty st- heavily still eight track. My but mom had guilty on eight track. So Streisand did this record. It's largely seen as her best pop record by many people. Wouldn't you say? I think so. Um, it's at least the best selling. It's it on the cover. You'll see. Uh, her and Barry Gibb sort of, you know, huddled up with each other. Barry Gibb, you know, handsome. Oh, he was the guy right you then know, and there the at that point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it came out in uh, 1980. Her a rec- The record before that was called Wet, apparently. And it was kind of... Um, she did that one with Donna Summer. So she'd already yeah. kind of started down the disco, uh, let's see, put my toe in the water of this disco thing and see if it works. Right. And it did. It sold like 4 million copies. So the producer's largely seen as Barry Gibb, but he had some other like partners. He had a guy named Albie Galutin. Okay, now see, Albie Galutin. You know about him? Yeah, this guy basically shifted the Bee Gees into disco town. Was he the guy? Yeah, so he helped basically create the 70s, Bee Gees disco craze from them being like a Beatles cover band, basically. They weren't. They had their own hits and stuff. They yeah. were they were known as like the Australian Beatles. And then the 70s hit, and he shifted them into this RSO, that big label, yeah, big like disco all, label. All these songs he was involved with with the Bee Gees, You Should Be Dancing, I Just Want to Be Your Everything. Right. How Deep Is Your Love, Staying yeah. Alive, Love Is Thicker Than Water, So basically, they, he helped them Night do the, the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack and, yeah. and kind of shifted them to this disco band, and it went off like a bomb. Yeah. And they were like, we got to keep going. And so they put Tragedy out, which was a huge hit. Tragedy. But here's the interesting part, Henry, I, I, and I remember this. The world was so saturated with the Bee Gees in 1980, and the disco backlash was starting to creep in. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what happened here, and, and I, I love this, was they had another whole record ready to go of material with, with this producer guy. And they said, you know what? There's such a backlash on the Bee Gees. What if we just got the most dope-ass singer in the world right now, pop singer, to sing your shit instead so, of you. So you're saying, you, like, everything These are that, BG songs. Everything that I read said Barbara asked him to do it. But you're saying that I think, you believe. I believe that they went. That with, he already had. If a, you listen, so there's a, in 2007, he released the demos from this record. Yeah. Now, you sent me two of these, and I listened to to. These are Bee Gees songs. This is just a Bee Gees Just song. him. Right. It's just him singing these songs as demos. But But here's the amazing thing to me. It works. Barbara Streisand, and I guess I always had a cringe factor because it was my mom's music. Yeah. Good Lord, this woman can sing. Oh, yeah, no doubt. Um, in fact, did you notice, like, there were, could you at some point in all the album, I don't have all the tracks pulled up here that were there, but, wait, yes, I do. I got the feeling, by the way, all of these songs were written by Barry Gibb. Every, last Every single one. Of one. Them. I could, I, I did a little research to try to find out if Barbara ever wrote a song i've seen her name co-written on four songs right i don't know that she wrote i i still i'm holding the theory that he had a demo tape full of songs and said let's let's do this and barbara was like i tried this already with donna summer it went okay it sounds like that but you know he wrote woman in love for a woman to see 
right? Well, yes, but I mean, I think all he did was change. I mean, that was just a quick lyric change kind of thing. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, yeah. I don't think that that was. I, I think they had another batch of songs ready, and it was kind of like Ryan Adams needed somebody to say that to him about <laughs> ten years ago. Hey, man, you just put three records out this year. This next one's going to be the bomb, but we can't put four records out in a year. Did you get? Why don't we give this one to Wilco? Okay, here's what I I I, I was running. Do you know where when I listened this? to this, okay. and I was I, I heard the ones I remembered, and then I I was going. I, I, now I'm now I'm getting into Misery Town. I did not feel that way, Henry. I didn't go misery, I, but I, I felt like I was listening to a Bee Gees record. It it because he was all over it. Because though no, very even the, made this album great. The feel of the songs feel like. But let me say this: this and you probably remember more about Barbara Streisand because you told me that your kids into Barbara Streisand. She was, is, yeah. We'll talk about it on another day. Yeah, yeah. Um, here's what I here's what I found interesting. You know, you've got all these singers today who try to show off how good a singer they are by doing all these vocal gymnastics, mm-hmm. kind of like what we'll talk about with a record later um, with guitar gymnastics. Barbara Streisand just sings notes, full, clear notes. Right. I dare anybody to go put Woman in Love on karaoke and get up in front of a crowd and try to sing the end of that song. But she doesn't do all this like, Nope. And nope. it's so beautiful. The production and on that song. I would rather hear Barbara Streisand sing the Bee Gees than the Bee Gees. That's what I'm going to say. Maybe. I thought this was a great record. I'm going to. I'm going to say I was so pleasantly surprised by so this. So was record. I. I. I do believe, and I'm not trying to. to throw and everyone is turning this podcast off yeah, right now because we but, started with Barbara Streisand. Well, but, but we both like it. <laughs> I do. I, I. I loved it, and um, but. I, I do think that it, it had an arc. Like, I could clearly tell, for me, which ones Barry Gibbs said, this is your hit. This is the one, you know, that they put a lot of time, effort, and energy into. And the others, I felt like, were more Barbara. Like I, I got, kept thinking I that swooping. a little bit. There were a couple where she, I, I felt like she was like, I got to have a ballad. I got to have a slow ballad. Right. But then I listened to them. And I'm like, that sounds like, if you go back, so I own the Bee Gees Tragedy record. If you go back and listen to the ballads on there, it's it's the same stuff. You could put Barbara Streisand on on that record. Would it have been even better? I think so, because she's a, Well, I, like, I only think it should have been called Streisand Gill. That's what I think. Mm, I, I really, I but think, see, he, you gotta think he was not given the, even though he's on the cover. You got to remember, you got to remember, though, my, my theory. What? We're, we're, we're trying to... We're not. We've overkilled the Gib thing. <laughs> he thinks so. We're trying to hide the Gib thing right now. Let's let this just be called Barbara Streisand. It was not, Streisand. It was nominated for Album of the Year. Yes, she was nominated for Best Pop Vocal Performance. She got a Grammy for that in '81. Uh, in, in for Woman in Love. Yes. Um, Record of the Year for Woman in Love. Song of the Year for Woman in Love. Yes. But she won for Best Vocal Pop Form Performance Duo or Group for Guilty. One of the characters on this was a guy named Don Geeman, who he did some recording work on this record. He also produced Life's Rich Pageant by R.E.M. I did not know that. Yeah. Um, and he did 70s live work for James Brown, Loggins Messina, Chicago. And the reason he started doing recording work, I read, was because Stephen Stills, he d- he did live work for CSNY's. Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young, and Stephen Stills said you should get into the studio, and he produced a solo Stephen Stills record called Illegal Stills. This is the kind of stuff you're not going to get from any other 80s podcast so, about right. Guilty by Streisand. The guy that right? produced 
REM's Life's Rich Pageant, probably my favorite REM record, was um, was in the production team on this album. There you go. That We just proved our, our music chops, and that's why when I tell you, I'm going to recommend to you, if you like disco, check this record out. You'll love it. I thought I thought it was yeah really good. Big ups. So I, I I would give it a recommend. Our next record, Henry, is completely different than Guilty by Barbara Streisand, and this record is called Blizzard of Oz. And the song we're going to listen to is Mister Crowd. I went to Ozzy. see Ozzy on the Blizzard of so Oz you know, tour. Well, you tell me what. So, your, and as a, I only knew about it tangentially. Yeah, as a ten-year-old who talked his older brother into taking him to see it, I all I cared about and all that was talked about all the time was that he ate the heads off of bats. Yeah, that kind of consumed the conversation. Right? right. So no one ever really talked about the records or was he any good. Did y'all have but I, I will be honest with you. I didn't even know the guy was in Black Sabbath. I didn't even know what Black Sabbath was. I Back just, then you didn't. Right. I just knew all the metal bands came to Johnson City, so I would go see them. But, man, before Ozzy came, it was this guy kills dwarfs. Mm-hmm. You know, like, all the rumors surrounding. <laughs> right. Eat, or, eat, that's the amazing part of it. Eats bad heads. He was the Alice Cooper in an, of in an age the 80s. where in an age where information is like easily accessible and somewhat verified and all yes. of that. This guy was surrounded in so much myth and hype. Right. And so by word the, of mouth. At the right? time, I, I put Henry my then review of the record because at ten I didn't really know anything about records, but my my teenage. 80s then just hated all metal music. So I really never gave this record a chance. So um, I learned some interesting stuff about it. I, I know you probably picked up on this too, but the first factoid I learned about it uh, was that 
the band was going to be called the Blizzard of Oz. Yes. And this was going to be a self-titled debut with Randy Rhodes and the other band members. But did you pick up on that the record company just switched it on them? Like, well, that's something they could do. I think a lot of what I read, Sharon Osbourne, who was his manager at the time, uh-huh. was not, I don't think she was Sharon Osbourne at the time, but no. she had a lot to do with, I probably she did wonders for this is all seen through the lens of two guys who've seen all this reality TV from this fucking guy. Yeah, but but I think I think she did have a lot years, of foresight but... to be like the best thing for Ozzy is not to be in a group called the Blizzard of Oz. The best thing for Ozzy, you think is she to had be... something to do with it, like pushing Ozzy to the front. Ozzy was even if you see 1980 Ozzy Osbourne interviews, the guy's not a no pun intended Rhodes scholar. Well, you say uh, okay. Yeah. Keep going. So anyway, uh, going back and listening to it now, I, I I found it to be enjoyable. At least the first half of the record, I thought it held up well all the way through Mr. Crawley. I thought there was some filler towards I, the end. Yeah, and the only song, everything worked. For me, I was, so, I was more pleasantly surprised with this record than I was. I knew what I was getting into with Guilty. I knew that I would probably like it. This record, I had no expectations. Yeah, and I and I want to give credit to the, the Randy Rhodes guy. I didn't know he wrote. I mean, he and the other dude. Dudes this kind is of a Randy Rhodes record. Yeah, the, he wrote all this stuff. I, I I can tell you, I haven't even gone to listen to the other Aussie records, and I can tell you that that guy had sp- some special sauce. Uh, Crazy Train. Yeah, it sounds like he did that whole thing through a practice amp. Why? What is going on with the production on this record? I don't did know. You, but I, did you figure that, that out? That's the too? Ba- most badass guitar. There's only one, one coming through like a practice amp, and but it sounds only, amazing. But there's only one song on this. It was Mr. Crowley that wasn't, re- you know, like we we can listen to the remasters on Spotify now. Well, that one was not, and the sound was really good. Everything else sounded like the guitar had been put in a little PV amp. There's so much that can be talked about this record, Henry, like going forward, like how there was a dispute when they re- reissued it. They had Ozzy's band at the time, the bass player and the drummer, re-record the drum and bass track up. just I, because they were pissed that the drummer and the bass player originally was suing them for songwriting credits. Yeah. And then everyone, every all the metalheads were had a shit fit and they re- yep, yep, reissued yep. it with the uh, original bass and drum. So... For all of you guys out there wanting to know what you what to think about it, if you're an anti-metal person, I would say still give it a listen because it really surprised me how it's not that bad. It's more like hard rock than what we what I think of as like poison or that kind of '80s hair metal. See, to me, I, if I listen to it without even looking at the uh, this the, the, the stuff the, surrounding the cover, it, the cover, or the surrounding stuff, right? I heard there is a blatant Beatles song on this record. Which like, one? Oh God! Okay, I, I, I thought you were definitely. Okay. I'd have to go through the tracks. Right, but one of them is, I mean, is Ozzy Osbourne's attempt at writing a Beatles song. I pulled the um, the lyrics to "No Bone" movies, which I think is not a great track on this one. Yeah, I, I, I wasn't a big. Fan uh, I wasn't. A, I wasn't really impressed with it. But if you look at the substance of his lyrics, there, there's there's that song. Um, on here called Suicide Solution. Remember the press blew the shit well, out Well, I, I thought we needed to talk about that just because that was a big kind of cultural moment in the 80s. A, a kid did kill himself yeah. after listening to that. And I think that this was part and parcel to that. Um, P, was it called the PRMC that Tipper Gore started? PMRC? PMRC Music Resource Council? Right, right. And so this record was one of the records that got that kind of thing started along with some Ronnie James Dio records and some other stuff. But But he got sued or something, right? Yeah, he got sued. And the judge, of course, ended up saying he had free speech rights. He wasn't responsible for kids killing themselves. 
Anyway, so but no. And of course, this song, the the Crawley song we listened to, for my you know, in in my circles, that was like you know, this guy is straight up. But if you devil if you read the lyrics, but no to one it, no one cares about that. The lyrics are 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 very questioning of Crowley. Like yeah, what his point was. I was ten and all. That. I know, but like people really didn't read the lyrics. Right. They just listened to it. I guess. Of course, right. There's this song, No Bone Movies. That's an anti-porn song. It's about being ashamed to watch pornography. Yeah, and I and I think there was an argument to be made that the Suicide Solution song was an uh, yeah anti suicide song. So yeah, I think I think a lot of this was overblown. Uh, before we move on to the next one, I did want to I, I did want to say that Rolling Stone rates this the ninth best heavy metal album of all time. I didn't know. Maybe some of you guys know. I, probably most of you know. I didn't know this was his first solo album. Yeah, post Black Sabbath, right after Black Sabbath, they kicked right. him out of Sabbath, which I thought because was he did too many drugs. And right, come on, anyway. So Randy Rhodes, they got a hold of him because he was playing in Quiet Riot, and introduced him to uh, to Ozzy. But the story from Randy Rhodes is that he came in, played guitar, and Ozzy drunkenly was in the control room and said, "Okay, uh, we'll take him." And maybe he didn't fully process things. Maybe he wasn't fully present. Ozzy claims he was present. Well, you know he knew how great the guy was. You know, I kind of, I kind of hated at the at now, but at the time, Quiet Riot. When I uh, about eighty one, eighty two, Quiet Riot had Man. their biggest hit with "Bang Your Head," which was the the guitarist that replaced Randy Rhodes, who I thought was the shit because uh-huh. I was a kid and I watched MTV. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I got to meet them. So our school had the, uh, or the Civic Center was on our campus. So whenever the metal bands would come to play, they would be sound checking during the day while we were in school. So our PE, all our PE shit was down there. So occasionally you could sneak in when they were sound checking. And if you could get by the guards or stuff, you might get to meet. So I like, I got to meet Eddie Van Halen once. He was hitting golf balls out on the back. Oh yeah. You mentioned that one. But I got to meet the replacement guy for Quiet Riot. Who I can't remember his name now. The replacement uh, guitar player? The guy that was that replaced Randy Rhodes, the yeah. next guy. Um, who I thought was way if you'd have told me then, I would have said he's the best guitarist in Quiet Riot because I didn't know anything but bang your head. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, that whole bit. But now I'm kinda like bummed out that I I you know, I started reading about Quiet Riot and I was like, Yeah, I met Quiet Riot. Oh, I met the kind of like Did you know that singer shitty died? replacement? That bird. singer from Quiet Riot died from cocaine. Dubro or whatever his name yeah. was. He tried to keep that stuff going way too long, but that was my brush with uh, my brush with celebrity. Anyway, Randy Rhodes died. Quite right. uh, yes. he did this record. He plane did, crash too. He did one after this. Plane crash is the best way to die if, if you're you're, a, you're going to be a, a legend. Guy. Yeah. Reportedly, on the road, he would try to seek out classical guitar player lessons, and had every intention of. And he was returning to that. Yeah, because he was a classically trained. Yeah. Ozzy said in an interview that he knew that he would lose Randy Rhodes at at some point. Right. But I told I I always poo pooed this whole Randy Rhodes thing, and I, I see guys worship him and whatever. But it was really I never I didn't have the perspective really at age nine or whatever I was, and it wasn't available to me later, so I never even got a chance to listen to it or even evaluate it with without being prejudiced in some way. So yeah, I would say uh, it's worth a listen to go back and check it out if you if you haven't heard it. Of course, if you're a fan, you definitely one, uh, worth going back and checking. One more out. thing I want to add is that this place this they recorded this place 
uh, at this place called Ridge Farm Studios, which originally was like a medieval farmhouse. It doesn't exist anymore. They closed the place in 2003. For years, a lot of other famous people recorded there, like The Smiths and Echo and the Bunnymen in that same facility. Right. right. Supergrass, the Lightning Seeds, Teenage Fan Club, all of those guys did um, kind of recorded in that same place. So Ozzy and uh, Morrissey probably shared a microphone somewhere. All right, Henry, that's uh, Blizzard of Oz. What's our next record? Okay, the next record is Permanent Waves by Rush. And this is The Spirit of Radio. So at this point in my life, I wasn't, I, I don't think I really became aware of Rush until Moving Pictures, which is the next record after Permanent Waves. So my experience with Permanent Waves was late 80s when uh, Roll the Bones and uh, what was the one? Presto came out. And then we, we, at least I did. I don't know if you did. I became a huge Rush junkie and went all the way back through all the catalog and nope. became a Rush head. Never did care about Rush. Uh, only saw the T-shirts with the guy with the pentagram on it. So it was also yet another vaguely satanic like band or something that I remember seeing. It. I think that was just marketing. I think sa- I know Satan stuff sold. They were just twenty Canadian. Band. I know, but that was like it's, it's weird that those those me- metal bands. I mean, I, it's weird. Rush that, is not a metal it's, band, but they called them that. You know, I, which didn't make any fucking sense. I know. But well, here's know. some interesting things I learned about uh, Permanent Waves that I didn't know doing this research. I didn't know that this was the first U.S. top five album for Rush. So Moving Pictures wasn't just the first big Rush record. They had a run starting with Permanent Waves of six consecutive top ten albums what? on the Billboard charts in the U.S. Uh, starting with Permanent Waves, which I, I didn't know. I didn't know that they were uh, Spirit of Radio to me. That song is definitely a top five Rush song of, of all time. I put that in the top five. I also I also think as a as a avowed Rush head, my favorite three songs of Rush back to back to back uh-huh. are the first three tracks on this record. Now really? I'm not saying those are the, my favorite three Rush songs. I'm just saying those are my favorite three lumped together. 
Um, Spirit of Radio, Free Will, and Jacob's Ladder. Jacob's Ladder is like, what I love about Permanent Waves, so Permanent Waves connects old 70s rush with 80s moving pictures were trying to be commercial rush. So like Spirit of Radio and Free Will sound like the beginnings of, of, of moving pictures, right? Yeah, but then new they New wave, reggae, and, but they can't help themselves with uh Jacob's Ladder. It just it's just it's this sprawling uh Neil Peart right wrote some stupid uh lyrics about mystery. Can we talk about Neil Peart for a second? <laughs> sure. First of all, like tread I, carefully I mean, I mean, with the greatest drummer of all time. As a, <laughs> you know as a drummer, or, or as a lyricist, Neil Peart was a great drummer. Right? <laughs> I'm not even going to laugh at that. You think that was funny? I'm not laughing at that. I always, think, I always like flipping that phrase. Here's the thing. The music is so competent and pretty strong with lyrics that you can competent? tell. You Come can on, tell, dude. Competent? Well, I mean, yeah, they're very competent. You know, extremely competent. That's like saying, that's just like, for you to call Rush competent is basically saying like... What other word do you fucking want? They're like the best musicians in the world so, at the time. Yeah, that's okay. Okay, great. okay, so if you went and looked at the Mona Lisa, you'd be like... Getty oh, Lee's a great bass player. So, Alex Lyson, so you're a great Henry's guitar at, player. Neil Peart, you're the greatest drummer Henry's ever. at the Louvre it looking at the Mona Lisa. didn't make your record awesome. Henry's looking at the Mona Lisa at the Louvre. Competent. Yep, competent. I would. I mean, I'm not saying that, but <laughs> but but so so just so I'm clear, your in your estimation, no, no, no. the this three of them are down. are competent musicians. This is not a thumbs continue, down. Continue, continue. But here's the bit that you're going to have to get with Rush if you come at it from from my perspective. The lyrics are a fucking afterthought in a lot of ways. I'm not saying they're bad, but they're not written to the song. You can hear Geddy Lee like squeezing in ridiculous, awkward phrases. That Neil Peart writes in the already pre-existing written song, right? And so the one thing that this record has for it that, like, I think that I've only heard about you, the Rush like expert, could probably uh, put the lie to this. But this is the one where we talk about broader themes about the nature of man and about, um, uh, to some degree, shades of atheism and all those things on this record. Whereas before, it was a lot of science fiction, Lord of the Rings kind of shit, right? Before that. Yes. What I like was Neil Peart grew out of science fiction into some better themes. I never think he was a great... He was. A, I think what you say is true. He's a great drummer who was the best lyric writer of the three. Of, of so, the three. And if you're into Rush so, for the lyrics... So let's let's take take but let's talk permanent waves. Let's just talk about right. permanent waves for the people. Well, a lot of people know Rush. A lot of people either hate Rush or love Rush. Let's talk about why you should or should not listen to permanent waves. Permanent waves from a, uh is is the record that Rush sort of starts shirking off their normal guitar-based stuff and, and the proggy stuff, stuff the longer right. stuff so if, if you're wanting to if, some of the songs are more concise and also right. more accessible to the average person right now obviously the next record is they're moving to full-on now that being said i think my favorites of the record was that big that really long one at the end that one's really good and then i i, I thought nature i think it's called yes and there's one before it called entree new which is like this soft acoustic thing which i was like this is the song that I would recommend to all girls and women who hate Rush, which is all girls and women, if you are going to try Rush again, you're still not going to like it. But this would be my song that is the most, like, give Rush a shot. You could maybe handle this. 
Well, one of the criticisms of, of Rush is always Geddy Lee's voice. Yeah, but on right. this one, he very consciously toned down all the uh, except for that one going thing. the false. Well, sometimes he had to, but yeah. But if you listen to the record before Permanent Waves, it's a real come down. Alex Lifeson was very much kind of having his Lindsay Buckingham moment when he wrote Tusk, uh-huh. which was the police were the world's lar- were on their way to being the world's largest commercially successful power trio band, right? And they kind of crossed Russia's radar, and Alex Lyson started listening to them. Is like shit. They're doing reggae, and they're kind of punky, but they're really great musicians, and they're appealing to everybody. We've got to start doing that. And this was their first attempt at that. It was interesting to me that Alex Lyson did not want to put Permanent Waves out when they finished it because he felt like they had not done that enough. He felt like they still sounded too much like Rush. They hmm. put it out, and then it it did phenomenally well for a Rush record. And then he was like, "Okay, maybe I'm too close to this. Maybe we did do a better and job." And the subsequent records pushed those boundaries. But I, but I, right? but I, I think I thought it was interesting that the police had that big an effect on him because I don't think you would have had a Moving Pictures or a Permanent Waves if he did not felt that competitive pressure from another power trio. It's so funny the way they force a reggae section into Spirit of Radio, like. Obviously, trying to do their police moment, and they were they were working with this producer. His name was Terry Brown, and this guy had been with them forever. Mm-hmm. You know, he did all those little records. Um, did you say little record? Sorry, I didn't mean little. Maybe that is it, was that a prejudice coming out of my mouth? Good lord! Um, they all those records. They stopped after Signals. Every one of those records were done. Well, don't get me. Th- I can't wait till we cover Signals. Oh my God, I love Signals. We're at Le Studio in mm-hmm. Quebec. Mm-hmm. Le Studio. You know, we should maybe Le, do a maybe if, if we find time. Maybe we should just do a Rush podcast. And enjoy Chris's Rush podcast, <laughs> everyone. So, I, of course, I'm going to recommend this record. I would recommend it then. I'd recommend it now. I would yeah, go, always come to it with. Oh, and I, and I want to say this real quick, Henry. Before we go, we got to go to the next record. But this is my favorite, unequivocal favorite. Rush album cover. If you don't like Rush, you still gotta like this album cover. It's awesome. What do you like about what do you like about it? So it much? Looks, I thought it looked a little corny to me. God, you just hate Rush. I mean, maybe I do, but so so you've looked at the cover for Presto or Roll the Bones. I don't care about those. Those suck too. This uh, is I, a I like twenty one twelve's record cover. I, that was cool. But it looks like it looks like a seventies t shirt. I yeah. mean it looks like the seventies, which is fine. So does Fly By but Night this with more, the Big This Owl. is the future, right? This is the next, you know. To me, it's cool because it looks like the past and the future. It's kind of a black and white thing, and it's got a, a, a hot, to me, 50s-looking model-type lady on the cover, but it also looks very futuristic. I went to Moving a... Moving Pictures is a terrible yeah. record cover. I don't like... I'm not a big Rush record cover fan, but this one... Yeah, did I you was, see the cover of Presto? I mean... Terrible. Roll terrible. the Bones. What about the one where they tried to go grunge with the screw and the... Oh, I don't remember that. It was terrible. Just anyway. Uh, uh, our listeners would not know it, but I have been to a Rush concert. I know. It's pretty It's well, pretty lame the way you're trying to hide right. your Rush fandom. With, with opener, Mr. Big. Yeah, that's a story we're going to have to tell another, that was, another they day. Really, those guys really like, knew how to pick them. Well, you know what? I'll make a note. <laughs> I'll make a note when we get to the mid to late 80s that we're going to review a Mr. Big record. But our next record. <laughs> oh, God, do I have to? <laughs> our Jeez. next record is called And Don't the Kids Just Love It by a band known as Television Personalities. So let's play Diary of a Young Man. Thank you. 
Okay, and you start on this one. I mean, you're going to make me start? I'll start. I, okay, I've got uh, lots of thoughts here, here about it. Here you go. I'm going to say that by, on paper, Chris, I'm supposed to like this album. Oh, no. We're going to have the same review. On paper, it's supposed to be post-punk and great. It is post-punk. And, and all of that. Checks every box. Checks every box. And that's exactly what it does, but all the boring ones. Let me ask you this. All the boring boxes get checked. And but if we'd have heard this arduous in 1994, we would have liked it, right? May, I, I'm, well, I'm looking at it as a man in 2018, and just it's not that impressive to me. Um, maybe is it is it because the bo- the box that we've put them in means that I listen to some of the best pop songwriters of all time, some of the best uh, musicians of all time. And all that. Is that why my perspective of it is so also because it's completely fucking foreign to me. I have two thoughts on this because I have the same, I I have the same reaction you did. This, this ticks all the boxes of the kind of music that anybody that knows Chris Lennon would go, Chris Lennon is going to love this, but I didn't. And, and here's the other weird thing. I'm sitting here on a podcast telling you that I liked a Barbara Streisand record and this record just kind of, but here's the reason I think, and I thought about this. We are so well-versed in this type of music that it is kind of a, eh, I've heard better. It made me, I, while I listened to this, I wanted to really go back and listen to some jam records or some blur records. I think this is like a precursor to Pop Life or Park Life, which is obviously it's a precursor, so they did it before. But And, and maybe Park Life is influenced by this record, but Park Life is so much better a record. If you listen to any of the jam records from this time period, I think they're way better than this record. Um, some of the things that I learned, though, about this record, Henry, that I didn't know, I, I didn't know that television personalities was such a big influence on bands like Pavement. More power to them. And, you know, if I'd have heard this before I heard the jam, if I'd heard this in 89 or 90, I probably would have loved it. It just isn't doing anything for me in 2018. I, I guess it was new, new, fresh, and interesting back then. So yeah, I'm but it's been retread so much that we can't tell the difference between the copies and the originals, I guess. Right? Well, even if this is an original, I prefer the copy. So that's where I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna this is my first and eh, if you're really into post punk music and you really have a hard on for something you haven't heard uh from the post punk genre. They recorded this at uh, Mount Pleasant Four Track Studios. I, what I've heard is that maybe the reason why people have a hard time grasping this because the production is so bad on it. I felt like they were writing the same song over and over, it sounded like, to me. Yeah, and it was just, I don't know. It's not, is it overly, overly British? Like, were there too many overtly no, UK references for us to understand? Or I don't. I disagree. The Cockney thing and all that uh, is is so prevalent on Park Life as well, yeah. and it doesn't bother me. They either. were they were formed apparently after hearing the Sex Pistols and Jonathan Reichman. And I mean, dear Lord, the Jam are so Cockney you can barely understand. And, what they and Alan McGee loved them. You know, thought they they were a foundational band for sure. creation. Sure. I'm, so uh, did John Peel. So I, I walked into it wanting to like it, but uh, but was sort of left underwhelmed. Uh, no offense to the guys in television personalities. I have no idea what the rest of their records sound like either. Right. So, well, maybe we'll review a couple more later in the 80s. But let's move on to our last record of the first episode, Henry. And it is Fourth World, Volume 1, Possible Music by John Hassell. And I hope I'm saying that right. And Brian Eno. That's right. And Henry, the name of the song that we're going to play is Rising Thermal, and it's got some GPS coordinates at the end of it, but we're just going to call it Rising Thermal. All right, here it is.
okay, Henry, I'm going to say right off the bat, I'm, my then review of that record was, I never heard it. I never yeah, heard of so it. A 10 year old, I have no fucking idea. You never saw this. You never heard of it. If I did hear it um, then, I would have thought you, you just have. grabbed something from 2030 and yeah. brought it back in time. Uh, and, and it's no secret to, if you listen to our, our other pod or or to Chris and I talk about music, I recently have gotten reattached to Brian Eno big time. So I was really looking forward to listening to the, to this record. And it's not available on Spotify. I don't know. Did you have a copy of the CD? No, I had to go Ever. to YouTube. I did too. So thanks. To, and I can't remember the guy's name. I should have written it down, but who posted this so that we could listen to it. It's basically, I think it's six tracks. It's six tracks, yeah. And the, the sixth one is, the 20, enti- is 20 minutes it's long. It's the entire second half of the record. So John Hassel is a trumpet player. Yes. Uh, every... I don't. I don't know. How, I feel like I should explain this in an academic way. Chris, get us started. Well, it's interesting because uh, for, just to let everybody know, I, the uh, synchronicity. We already mentioned the police, but the synchronicity. Uh, John Hassell just has a new record coming out, like right now, this really? month. Yeah, that just got reviewed today on uh, the Quietus. So check it, that out. Is it good? Yeah, it's cool, like and it. it's it's in this. It, the funny thing is, it's in the same vein. So. Doing my research for this record, I realized this record is actually more of a John Hassell record than a Brian Eno record. John Hassell had a theory that he called the fourth world, and he's still kind of feeling that with his new record. But basically, there were two records that he put out that had this fourth world concept, which was this record with Eno, and then another record he did before this called Dream Theory in Malaysia. I'm sorry, it came out after this one. It came out in 81. Um in Malaya, not Malaysia. God, <laughs> like a white person. Malaysia, right? That's a but, disease. Um, right, but I, uh, Hassel said that fourth world. The concept meant the merging of traditional and spiritual side from the third world with first world technology. So basically, what you're going to hear on this record is John Hassel plays trumpet that sounds nothing like a trumpet because it's run through a synthesizer. It sounds like the to me sounds like these crazy futuristic sounds. And Brian Eno went and took a bunch of samples of African rhythmic sounds from the third world, you know, third world type rhythms. And they married the two together. Um, that's the whole concept. Henry, something I, I kind of did want to discuss with you as an ancillary what? thing to this record is back then that was considered, I know Peter Gabriel was doing this and Paul Simon and, you know, Going back and, and mining uh, world music or what we called world music and finding these rhythms and stuff. And that was fine in the 80s because it seemed enlightening. In 2018, does that look now kind of like um, colonialism where white men are going back and, you know, John Hassell, a white uh, English trumpet player, is going back and mining you know, third world sounds and like Paul, you know, it's not like. Yeah. Third world musicians were getting huge off of this stuff. Peter Gabriel was getting huge off of it. Paul Simon was getting huge off of it. I don't think David Byrne even likes the term world music. Right, even though it was kind of because of the album that he and Brian Eno did called My Time in the Bush with Ghosts, I believe is the name of it, which yeah. came after this record. Supposedly he took some of the stuff he learned from doing this and moved it over to that. Yeah, which, which I like that John Hassell thought that was too commercial a record. <laughs> He didn't like it because it was too commercial. But, but you know, that, that record even, I can't wait to review that record because it, it kind of, a lot of rap artists cite that record as the origination that of sampling. Burn, the David Byrne record. The David Byrne and Brian Eno record um, as like 
my life in the bush of ghosts you, you know, as the beginning of sampling. But this record is actually kind of sampling before sampling because yeah. all of those rhythm tracks are just Brian Eno had recorded. But man, them. at some point you don't even you're not even tracking that it's a sample anymore. That's the most beautiful thing about it. Right. And then if and, you step and, back and just listen and, to it, it's just... I want to see if you had the same reaction I did. I, I'm driving down the road. This is where I'm listening to this music. I, I have to. The family's not altogether going to tolerate this stuff. So as I was driving, I realized that I'm experiencing the music in places in my head that normally are not sort of wired for it. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Like I've been listening to pop records for a long time, verse, chorus, you know, what the, what that should be. But it was almost like a trance state that I could be put in. Did well, you feel I'm, that way? I do, but I feel that way with most of the ambient, quote-unquote, records of Eno. Yeah. So for people that don't listen to it, here's, here's what I would say. I always approach every Eno record. Every time I try to pull one out, I approach it the same way I, I approach classical and jazz. I don't want to listen to this because I'm not going to like it. And it's going to be too, uh, the barrier to entry is going to be too hard for See, me to get yeah, in the... because there's no vocals. All the songs are going to be longer than three minutes. And then every time I make myself listen to one, I'm like, God damn, that was easy to listen to. Yeah. And it was a joy. And I felt good after it was over. <laughs> and this record in particular, to me, Henry, that this record is 38 years I old. Know. And it still sounds like it's 25 like years further in the future than today. And, you know, you said that the, tr that the trumpet was fit through a synth. That's probably true. But if you listen closely, you can still hear the vowels on that trumpet. Right. You and can you can hear the brass. Well, and it's like, thing. it's like being a guitar through a synthesizer. It's not fully like in there, but it's, uh, you're, you're still plucking strings. So you're still going to hear some of that sound. You see what I'm saying? But if, if right off the bat, you'd have put the first song on and not known anything no, about it, you wouldn't yeah, have yeah. gone, Oh, that's a trumpet. No, I wouldn't have. Right. But I did like the kind of knowing that what it was and sort of try to, Get in there with it. Right. But um, I've been so infatuated with Eno these last... Maybe I'm not giving it... Um, maybe I'm giving it too much. Well, for those of you out there, worth, I would but, say who haven't approached Eno at all, um, this is a great entry record. You can put this on while you're cleaning the house, or you can put this on when you go to bed, and it's not going to uh, shock you out of your sleep at night. I actually find it real easy to listen to, yep. as opposed to hard. So was, I would definitely recommend this record, and... And so it was put out on an indie, um, an indie record label called EG, um, which, you know, they would, uh, and it was, that was distributed by a major label. So, I mean, this was a time when they probably took more risks with records, don't you think? I, I might right. even argue, I mean, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe one of the Peter Gabriel records beat this to the punch, I don't think so. I think this might be the first one where guys are, are kind of doing a, and this and the 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 song we play is called Rising Thermal, but it's got a little bit at the end that says fourteen degrees. What fourteen degrees? What is it? When you do GPS coordinate, is it fourteen degrees? Sixteen Boy, don't, minutes? Don't ask me. I can't even anyway, tell. It. I don't even know the difference in the, the little thing for inches and. But those feet. things translate to the area that's on the record cover, which is uh, a river, uh, the White Nile River, which is also the name of a Sudanese state. So right. that's um. Anyway, coolest, so, mysterious, interesting. So I would, cool I would, shit, I would definitely recommend this record now. 
So really, I bet the you only would too, right? Yes, very much. The well, only thing we kind of went toe to, toe to toe on is Russia a little bit. I think. Yeah, we kind of agree amongst the others. Hopefully, or not hopefully, maybe that won't happen uh, in other months. But that is our that is our um, tour through January of 1980. Henry, what would you call your pick of the week if you had to just pick one record that you would recommend to people out there? The whole album. Yep. So it's going to be. It's going to be guilty, man. It's going to be guilty. Stri- guilty by Barbara Streisand. I had a tie. You can't do a tie? You don't, you don't fucking drop that in I, and like, make I, me choose, <laughs> and then you take a fucking tie. I had a tie between, uh, because I feel like they're so at odd uh, at different ends of the spectrum that I think it would give people a good uh, a good tour through different types of music. What? Guilty and Fourth World by uh, Hassel and Eno. All right, and we'll be back next uh, next time with uh, February of 1980. And by that time, we'll probably have an email address and all those other things for you. And definitely Twitter, because I think the way we can build a community here is through the Twitter. Twitterverse, is that what they call it? Twitterverse. Hopefully you enjoyed it, and we'll be back with February of 1980 next hey, week. Hey, Chris, guess what? What's that? I made you a mixtape.